That is the sound you never want to hear. It's the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. Today's interview is with Alice Slater, founder of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and a multi-decade crusader against nuclear weapons and uranium mining, as well as reactors. This straight shooter has worked with groups as diverse as the United Nations and Occupy, and she minces no words in revealing the connection between nuclear reactors and nuclear weapons. Your perspective will never be the same again. Coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 23, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. According to a Nuclear Regulatory Commission bulletin issued on Sunday, October 21st, an unknown quantity of hydrogen gas is leaking from Reactor 2 at San Onofre, which, like Reactor 3, has been closed since a leak of radioactive steam last January and the discovery of severely damaged steam generators. The NRC did not say what caused the leak, nor will they say if the hydrogen is radioactive or not. The hydrogen leak is reminiscent of the buildup of hydrogen gas which occurred at Three Mile Island in 1979 and resulted in three explosions at the stricken Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant last year. According to Gary Hedrick of San Clemente Green, it is troubling to learn that the plant can have a serious problem with a hydrogen leak when it is shut down. He also said that forcing customers to pay potentially billions of dollars for Edison's aging and crippled nuclear reactors is unacceptable. Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric customers already have some of the highest electrical rates in California and the nation. Here's a bit of unexpected good news. The Kiwani Nuclear Power Plant in Wisconsin will close by mid-2013 and will then be decommissioned, Dominion announced after failing to find a buyer for the plant. The company bought a single pressurized water reactor in July of 2005 in anticipation of establishing a portfolio of nuclear units in the Midwest region. However, Dominion's failure to successfully bid for other suitable plants in the region when they became available diminished the strategic rationale for retaining Kiwani. In April of 2011, the company announced that they had decided to sell. At that time, the company was confident that it would find a buyer for Kiwani especially as the plant's operating license had recently been extended for a further 20 years, until 2033. But Dominion failed to find a purchaser, so it has now said it will shut down the plant. It expects to end power generation at Kiwani in the second quarter of 2013, and then to begin decommissioning activities. Woo-hoo! One down, 103 to go. San Onofre's next. That was prognostication, not a news report. Here is the genuine Numbnuts of the Week award. We at Nuclear Hot Seat are going to be offering a free PDF of Homeland Security's one-size-fits-all press kit to be used in case of a nuclear disaster. That's right, kids. They have press releases for everything from early warning to shelter-in-place. One of them even quotes the governor of the state, as saying who's in place, what's in place, and what's being done, and we don't even know what it is that he's talking about, because it's all theoretical. 
but it's all written. It is nuclear preparedness at its most bald-faced and intended to manufacture public consent. Again, there's going to be a free PDF available of this if you just go to the nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog page so you too can read all of the numbnuts details. In Lithuania, their referendum, which we reported on last week, has cast a shadow over GE Hitachi Limited's strategy to increase sales from its nuclear business. GE Hitachi had signed a provisional contract with the Lithuanian government to construct a nuclear plant in that Baltic nation. But in a non-binding referendum held on Sunday, October 14th, 62% of Lithuanian voters rejected the project, a result that could make the Lithuanian government review it. Gee, do you think? A GE Hitachi spokesman said the result of the referendum was regrettable. Yeah, ain't it terrible when the people speak up for themselves? Dang it, that democracy? Gotta do something about it. Here in the United States, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission staff is implementing a National Academy of Science Committee's recommendations to perform a pilot study of cancer risk in populations around six U.S. nuclear power plant sites and a nuclear fuel facility. The pilot effort will examine each of the seven sites with two types of epidemiological studies. The first will examine multiple cancer types in populations living near the facilities. The second will be a case control study of cancers in children born near the facilities. The seven sites are Dresden in Morris, Illinois, Millstone in Waterford, Connecticut, Oyster Creek, Forked River, New Jersey, Haddam Neck in Connecticut, Big Rock Point Nuclear Power Plant in Charlevoix, Michigan, and San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station in San Clemente, California. The pilot study process will begin in the next three months and will continue at least until 2014. Then they have to crunch the numbers and it will be years before we actually find out the results. On the program, If You Love This Planet, which is produced by and hosted by Dr. Helen Caldicott, in their August 30th edition, there was a conversation between Helen and Arnie Gunderson, who was her guest. Arnie was talking about the study that had been released about genetic damage in butterflies in the Fukushima area. He said, what they are finding is that in successive generations, the genetic damage is getting worse so that three generations of butterflies seem to have more genetic damage than the first generation. We are looking at a damaged gene pool that will not manifest itself in 10 or 20 years. It will manifest itself in a generation or two. Dr. Caldicott replied, it is called genomic progression. Arnie went on to say, there's a good study out that shows in Hiroshima victims, the kids continued to have thyroid problems up into their 50s, 60s, and 70s. It used to be thought that if you got through the first couple of years, you are out of the woods. But for the children whose thyroids are growing, apparently that is not true. And they are seeing continual thyroid problems essentially for life. When I met today's interviewee at the Coalition Against Nukes Rally for a Nuclear Free Future, and I heard her speak at the congressional briefing, she absolutely changed my mind and my positioning as regards one aspect of the nuclear issue. Give a listen and see how you feel after you've heard from our guest. Alice Slater is New York Director of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. She's a founder of Abolition 2000, a global network in 95 countries working for a treaty to ban the bomb. 
She directs its Sustainable Energy Working Group. Alice is on the boards of the Lawyers Committee for Nuclear Policy, Shut Down Indian Point Now, and the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. She's a member of the Occupy Wall Street Working Group for Environmental Solidarity and is a United Nations NGO representative. Alice has written numerous articles and op-eds with frequent appearances on local and national media. Alice, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm delighted to be here. We met at the Coalition Against Nukes Rally for a Nuclear-Free Future, and up until the point of working with CAN, I was involved with nuclear reactors and sharing information about that, and you were the one who really raised my awareness of the connection between nuclear weapons and nuclear power. So please explain to the listeners the basics. What is the relationship between weapons and power in the nuclear arena? Really, people have to know that our movements to shut down nuclear power and shut down the bomb have been artificially separated because, in fact, every nuclear reactor is a bomb factory. That is how you get the material for the nuclear weapon. You put the uranium, you mine the uranium, you put it into a nuclear reactor, and what comes out is this irradiated fuel rods that can be enriched into bomb material. The reason these things are so intertwined, it was deliberate. I mean, we were warned from the beginning of the atomic age that nuclear power was a recipe for proliferation. Well, wasn't it an excuse that was made, first of all, I spoke quite at, quite at length with um, Carl Grossman last week, and he explained the history of how we did not get our information correct about nuclear. But my understanding is that the initial impulse to keep going with the nuclear reactors so that GE and Westinghouse and the companies that were profiting off of it wouldn't lose their profits and beyond that, it became the source for the nuclear materials to make more bombs. Well, but there was there was a report in 1946 for President Truman after we dropped the bomb that the development of atomic energy, I'm quoting, for peaceful purposes and the development of atomic energy for bombs are in much of their course interchangeable and interdependent and that only central control, controlling all materials starting at the uranium mines, could block the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Nevertheless, Eisenhower, who was seeking to counter public revulsion at the normalization of nuclear war in U.S. military policy, was advised by his Defense Department Psychological Strategy Board, and I'm quoting, the atomic bomb will be accepted far more readily if at the same time atomic energy is being used for constructive ends. And so he developed his whole Adams for Peace policy, gave the speech at the U.N. saying that this miraculous inventive of man shall not be dedicated to his death but concentrated to his life. So in other words, nuclear energy became a PR campaign right. to persuade people that it was okay to have this material for nuclear bombs. Right, that the bomb wasn't so bad because look at all this good stuff that's coming out. And meanwhile, we kept building up our nuclear weapons arsenals. And, you know, they couldn't even get Westinghouse and GE to do this, to manufacture it, until we promised them the Price-Anderson Act, which limited their liability because it was much too expensive and much too risky. So that was something that we subsidized so that we could get them to go ahead. And just to fill in the footnotes here, explain the Price-Anderson Act. Well, that's an act that Congress passed at Eisenhower's insistence 
at the time that we were doing Adams the Peace that said they keep changing the amount, and I'm not sure what it is now, but that there would be limited liability, let's say $100 billion if there were a nuclear accident. Meanwhile, we're talking about a trillion in Chernobyl and Fukushima, you know, it was way under. The liability was like, I, I don't, I'm sorry to be. I believe the proper number for the Price-Anderson Act is $12 billion. Okay, so that was the limited liability when we know that Chernobyl was several hundreds of billions in damage, you know, and Fukushima's are talking about trillions. So this, the U.S. taxpayer is bearing any expense for any nuclear accident that will happen. So before Westinghouse and GE would continue, they wanted to keep the money flowing, but they had to be convinced that they wouldn't be in a liability situation. So they were told, okay, you're off the hook. The taxpayers will pick it up. And only then were they willing to continue creating nuclear reactors. Because originally it was only done for uh, for the military. And then they were trying to sell it. We sold it to Japan. You know, We sold they, the nuclear reactor. We sold it to Japan because we had this uh, Bravo test in the South Pacific in the 1960s. Was that the really monster test where even the yeah. scientists were trying to leave because they didn't know if there would be an atmosphere left afterwards? Right, and hundreds of Marshall Islanders were contaminated. And this Japanese fishing boat, the Lucky Dragon, the fishermen aboard it were all irradiated and died, and the Japanese tuna was contaminated because it was close to Japan. And the Japanese, who we had been censoring during the occupation, there was no discussion of the atomic bomb or the effects. We didn't allow anything in the Japanese press. They were outraged at what was going on in the Marshall Islands, and we actually freed one of their war prisoners, who was a, a publisher of the Ashahi Shimbone and the Nippon TV to shill for the nuclear industry. Like that was part of their thinking, how are we going to tamp down this rage that we will make? We offered them a nuclear reactor, and then there was an incredible manipulation of public opinion so that they should love the atom and think it was so peaceful and good. And, you know, I've been an anti-nuclear activist since the 80s, and I've been to Japan a number of times. And, of course, there's devoutly against the bomb, but you couldn't talk about nuclear power. They loved their nuclear power until Fukushima. Now Japan is leading the way. There are hundreds of thousands of people protesting. Right, and even though the government has at one point tried to come out and say, okay, we'll do away with nukes, even though they set it far in the future, and sometime in the 2030s, the U.S. has come back to them with a lot of pressure to step back from that position, the government to step back from right. that position. And and the government has, and I think the people are going to push them again. And this is all because our government is captured by the industry. You know, they are supporting these manufacturers. We, we now that we, we talk about controlling the nuclear materials, I mean, Obama went to a meeting in Seoul last spring where they're talking about controlling the materials because they're afraid of this, that the more people get nuclear reactors, the more people have the capacity to make bombs. And now there's been an outbreak of other countries that want to get nuclear reactors, such as the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. And they want to get their bomb in the basin because once they have the reactor, they have the nuclear power. And we made a deal with the United Arab Emirates that, they wouldn't enrich uranium, which Iran is trying to do. And uh, But Saudi Arabia won't make that deal, and we're still trying to sell it to them because we're competing. Our corporations are competing to sell these nuclear reactors to other countries.
They're competing to sell the technology to other countries that can, down the line, guarantee that they will have nuclear bombs with which they can attack us. They'll have all the technology they need to make a nuclear bomb if they should so desire. That's what There's this non-proliferation treaty that was signed in 1970 where the then five nuclear weapon states, the U.S., Russia, England, France, and China, promised to give up their nuclear weapons if the rest of the world promised not to get them. And everybody signed it except for Israel, India, and Pakistan. They went on and got their own bombs from nuclear power. North Korea, who signed and agreed to it, walked out of it about eight, nine years ago and built their own bomb from their peaceful nuclear technology. And yet, this is what we were doing. We're guaranteeing them the keys to the bomb factory while we're threatening to bomb them if they do nuclear proliferation. But only the countries we don't like, like Brazil... And Japan, they've enriched uranium, but nobody ever told them not to enrich uranium. We're only telling Iran not to enrich uranium because the enrichment is for their nuclear power. But if they put it through a couple more times, they have it enriched to a higher level to make a bomb. So it's very hard to control it. This is the, the like the last gas of the patriarchy. They think they're going to control it. We're going to give them the material. We're going to give them the supplies, but we're going to tell them, no, no, you mustn't do this. You mustn't do that. And if they don't do it, what are we going to do? Bomb them? I mean, you know, that's what we did in Iraq. We're threatening it in Iran. It's 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 a recipe for war. Which, of course, seems to be America's greatest export to the rest of the world. <laughs> now, exactly. can you give me a sense as to what the time gap is between, okay, a country has this quote-unquote peaceful nuclear reactor just to give them energy, and oops, they have genuinely already built a bomb in a basement. Is there a a period of time that that takes? The enrichment takes time, but they're all doing it. I mean, Japan has it. I was visiting in Japan in 1995, and uh, I met with then... Tadio Akiba, who became the mayor of Hiroshima and organized the Mayor's of Peace campaign, but then he was a member of the Japanese parliament. And he said to me, you know, Japan has the bomb. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we have the material. We have the technology. I said, well, how long would it take you to put it together? He said, three weeks. So once they've enriched it to bomb-grade material, they're ready for it. And Iran is saying it's not going to enrich that much but it's only enriching up to a certain level. But then it can kick out the inspectors and enrich it some more. It would take a few months. and That's the hardest part of making a bomb is getting the uh, enriched plutonium that's made from the waste from the nuclear reactor, the peaceful nuclear reactor. We're playing with fire. It doesn't make any sense, particularly when we have enough sun and wind and geothermal and tidal energy. We don't need this energy. So it all boils down to its greed for money, which is a a false concept that's been invented and and kind of slapped onto the world and and distorted so many things. But what good is money if there's no earth, if there's no life on earth, if we're all contaminated into the future and, and we can't have grandchildren? Right, but look at how this is happening in so many areas. I mean, you have this corporate corruption. What about the GMO, you know, genetically modified food there, you know, the Mm -hmm. the fracking with the natural gas where they're going to kill our water supply, you know, and the burning of fossil fuel when we know that we're destroying the temperature of the planet. We're at a point, a turning point in the history of the planet because, first of all, 
for the first time, like in 1967 or whenever we went to the moon, we saw the Earth. I mean, we never even saw it as this visual ball floating in the heavens. And now we have the Internet. We're totally interconnected. And you have the old forces. It's all, it's the patriarchy. It's like too much yang. It's too much macho energy, the warlike power is so out of balance. So how do we how do we change it? How do we shift this away from the the warmongering and the destruction and the domination and the one up one down into the kind of cooperation and sane safe energy and the kind of world that we would all like to envision but it doesn't seem like we're going down that road. It's going to take enormous people power at the grassroots because the people get it. They know we should have clean energy. You know, they don't want war. Public opinion polls, huge majorities are want the right thing. But we've done this before. I mean, we had huge grassroots movements to abolish slavery. I mean, we fought a civil war over it. We had huge grassroots movements to have the labor unions established where labor was so exploited all those years. We had the women's liberation movement. We had the civil rights movement. I mean, this we're coming into the next phase, which is the Earth First movement. I mean, we have to have, like, people working for the, for the fate of the Earth. It's not just nuclear weapons, although that's, like, I want to talk about nuclear weapons. I mean, there's 20,000 on the planet, and 19,000 are in the U.S. and Russia. Aimed at each other. Right, and some of them, like 5,000 between both countries are on hair-trigger alert where they can go off in minutes, even if there's a computer error, they could go off. We're living on the edge of the sword of Damocles that Kennedy spoke about. But it's really up to the U.S. and Russia to get going, and Russia is willing. I mean, Gorbachev wanted to get rid of nuclear weapons when he met with Reagan in Reykjavik, but Reagan won't give up, wouldn't give up Star Wars. And right now, we're pointing missiles at Russia. We're planting them in former Soviet republics like Georgia. I mean, how would we feel? We know how we felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where they put missiles here. So we're still putting missiles on Russia, even though the country has changed so dramatically and it's no longer the communist bastion that it was? This is being driven by what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. I call it the military-industrial-congressional-academic complex. But this is strictly driven by money because we don't need to defend ourselves against Russia. The Cold War's over. The wall is down. I mean, we thought... They were the enemy. Now they're giving us a new enemy, terrorists. Even with the terrorism enemy, you can't use nuclear weapons against them. You know, I mean, they're, they have their latest drone technology, which is another insanity. Because just think about drones. Any nerd can do a drone. It's not like a nuclear weapon. Anybody can get it. So they're going to be droning us back soon. Our government right now, this kind of patriarchal, hierarchical energy is putting us in a very precarious position. Tell us about Abolition 2000. This is a network that we formed in 1995 to eliminate nuclear weapons and nuclear power. We recognize the inextricable link between nuclear weapons and nuclear power. And we called for a treaty to ban the bomb. We drafted a model treaty that's now a U.N. document. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's talking about it. And just this week at the U.N. and the Committee on Disarmament, many countries are saying it's time to start the negotiations. So it's up to the people to tell our government we want you to sit down and start talking about banning the bomb. 
And the other thing we called for was the establishment of an international sustainable energy agency so we could phase out nuclear power. We have the Atomic Energy Agency. We have the Energy Agency that's for fossil fuels. So ARENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, was formed like two years ago. And since ARENA is the Greek word for peace, I really think that's the direction. We should all be working as hard as we can to get sustainable energy on the table because then nuclear power will have to fade away. And also war will fade away. Half the wars we fight are over oil and resources, uranium, mining. I mean, we have to get to a more sustainable living system. And it's just going to take huge people power like we did with slavery and civil rights and women's rights. Now, as I said, last week I spoke with Carl Grossman, and he laid out the fascinating story of how nuclear energy has been manipulated in the public perception since before it was admitted that there was such a thing as as an atomic bomb, from before the first blast at Trinity through, through Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and, and all the rest. In the past... These people-powered movements have had tremendous support and encouragement or at least visibility through the media, where here it is, except for some wimpy stories around the anniversary of Fukushima, the first one, it's almost impossible to get stories in the mainstream media dealing with these issues. How do you propose we get around this? First of all, I I disagree. It was true for every movement. I just wrote this story about McGovern, how we captured the Democratic Party against the war, and nobody gave him any coverage while we were running for the nomination. And after he got it, they totally wiped him out in the media. You know, all these things have been a struggle. The civil rights, the terrible things that were happening to blacks were going on forever. It wasn't until they got arrested and, you know, police were beating them up that the media paid some attention to it. I mean, the story wasn't told for years. So our story hasn't been told either, but we have, for the first time, the Internet and programs like yours that people can get on the web. I mean, this is in our favor that people can get their news now from other places. And the other thing is, I mean, we have... Groups like Occupy Wall Street, they didn't go away. You know, I mean, the media tried to downplay them in the beginning and had to write about them finally. But they're still meeting and planning and plotting. And uh, I think like the tar sands pipeline thing, that's going to be huge. I bet hundreds of thousands of people are going to be there trying to stop the pipeline. I mean, people really get that one because of global warming and Gore's movie. Whatever it is, they're all the same issue. It's that we're going to put a rein on capitalism and check it and make it work for people? Are we going to just let corporations, you know, rape and pillage and plunder the resources of the earth? They got limited liability. Like nobody in a corporation is accountable for what they do, so they can do whatever they want. And the irony is that, of course, especially with nuclear, they are not immune to the consequences of the actions they are taking. Their immunity is a legal fiction as opposed to a physical reality, because there's no place to run and hide from nuclear radiation. Or from pollution of water or chemicals or, you know, any of these terrible things they're doing. They're in a time warp. They're just caught up in their profit, bottom line, you know, corporate greed, and we have to bust the spirit of it. I mean, nuclear is certainly one of the most egregious, you know, it's like the most immediately threatening, but it's all threat. The whole system has to shift, and we have 
you see it. It's, we're in a transformative time. I mean, that's what the Arab Spring was in Tahiri Square and the Indignados in Spain and the Occupy Wall Street movement. I mean, there's people in Greece. I mean, they're on the march. They're not letting the corporations take over. And Iceland won. I mean, they took down all the banks and they didn't go for austerity and everybody's fine in little Iceland. Plus, they're going to be completely sustainable by 2050 with geothermal and um, wind energy and water energy and they, you know, hydrogen fuel cell stores it. They try to tell you, well, you can't store the sun and the wind, but you can. A quote that I just read from uh, Arnie Gunderson, and I'm sure he's citing other places, is that the energy mavens out in the world will say, oh, don't worry about nuclear waste. We can store that for tens of thousands of years without any damage. But, gee, we can't store solar overnight. No, well, that's total lie. I mean, we can store solar in a hydrogen fuel cell. You use the sun to do electrolysis on water. It divides it into hydrogen and oxygen. You put the hydrogen in a battery. That runs your cars, your airplanes, your trains, all your electricity, too. And when the hydrogen is burned, it recombines with oxygen to make H2O water, pure enough to drink. No asthma, no pollutions. It's a miracle. Why don't we have it? Because they can't sell the sun. They can't sell the wind. They're pushing fossil fuels, shale gas, nuclear power because they can make a profit from it. And who can profit from the sun or the wind? So the vision that we need to hold on to is that of what the sustainable future looks like as we move away from these others. So, And, and these are can be completely overwhelming issues. So if you were to make some grassroots, individual, take-an-action suggestion, what would it be? Well, I always love what Ralph Nader used to say. He said, instead of having a coffee break, take an action break. Pick up the phone and call your member of Congress or get in touch with your city council. I mean, here in New York, we're trying to do a city council resolution to make New York City 100% sustainable. Get in touch with the people in power that can do something, you know, and network with groups like CAN or Abolition 2000 that have, like, uniform actions where everybody can get together on the same thing, you know, and stick with the Internet and the alternative media, and you'll get ideas, but don't sit on your hands. Take action, whatever it is. Do something. If everybody did something, we would fix it. You know, there are a lot of good things. You could be promoting solar energy. You could be promoting wind energy. There's groups that are doing solar, wind, you know, uh, efficiency. You can be fighting nuclear power. You can be working for a treaty to ban the bomb or to stop the war in Afghanistan. It's all the same. It's We're all fighting the same issue. That's what we have to learn. We're changing the system from this corporate runabout that's, that has no consideration for human life or the future. We have to rein them in. You know, work on the democracy proposals, like ending the, the campaign finance fiasco that we have right now, or better control at the ballot. There's things just to make democracy stronger. This, The reason we have this, it's a failure of democracy. People are not really getting in their face about exercising our rights as citizens. Alice, 
this has been a fabulous blast of information, and I know how much you turned around my thinking about the nuclear connection between reactors and bombs, and beyond that, into the rest of the matrix. And I trust that you've just done that for the listeners, too. If people want more information, either about Abolition 2000 or about the work that you are doing, where should they go? Well, for Abolition 2000, I go to www.abolition2000.org. And let's point out that that's the number 2000. Right. And there's also wagingpeace.org. That's the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. They have action alerts that you can do. And I think people should join the Coalition Against Nukes.org because that's a whole new good energy that's coming forward of grassroots action. And that is starting to be networked out internationally as well. So, indeed, the Coalition Against Nukes may be the group we've been looking for where we all get together, have our voice, plan things out, and then take action locally but with a global perspective. Great. And there's one more thing I want to mention. There's the global network uh, against uh, – it, it's Keep Space for Peace, number four, keepspace, number four, peace, dot org. And they're working to stop this missile madness because if we don't rein in the missiles, this is like key, Russia won't talk to us and China won't talk to us. So we won't be able to, you know, get disarmament going. So that's another way to participate. Well, I know that we'll have many opportunities to speak with you in the future and get updates on all of these, Alice. But for now, I want to thank you for being on Nuclear Hot Seat today. Thank you. Alice Slater is New York Director of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and so many other things working on our behalf for a safer, saner, and a nuclear-free world. Here's today's final thought. No, Fukushima did not explode, have fires, Unit 4 did not crash, and we are not in the end times. It was a hoax on the Internet. Or perhaps another in a long series of, let's scam the anti-nukers, So when a real disaster happens, no one will believe them. The story appeared on the Internet on Monday, talking about terrible things that had happened at Fukushima and virtual riots in Japan. It was forwarded to me from a reliable source within our movement who was genuinely alarmed. I started flipping out, and then right after I reposted, I posted again and put everybody on hold because I wasn't certain that it was genuine. Then I reached out to Iori Mochizuki, who does Fukushima Diary, and Arnie Gunderson for any information they might have. The answers came from both very quickly. There was absolutely no truth to those stories. I started posting their replies immediately to help put out the fire that was raging online. Fortunately, Dutch Sins was on it, and he has posted an expose of the entire hoax on his blog, sincedutch.wordpress.com There will be a link up on the Nuclear Hot Seat website. Just go to the blog page. Apparently, according to Dutch, there's a group of warped-out tech heads who think it's cool to do the cyber equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded auditorium. Either that, or they're in the pay of the nuclear industry or the government, Black Ops Division, and set to undermine us. Here's the lesson. We need to be careful before forwarding apocalyptic information about Fukushima or anything nuclear, lest we be labeled as hysterics and ignored in the event that something serious does take place. Now, this could just be coming from some people with a warped sense of humor and too much time on their hands, or it could be part of an overall campaign to undermine our credibility on nuclear issues. Either way, 
It doesn't make us look reliable to the great uninformed masses out there. It will also make it harder for people to take us seriously should a real disaster happen at Fukushima or elsewhere. So if you run across an alarming story on the Internet, before you forward it to 5,000 of your closest Facebook friends, take a moment and check it out. Contact me at Nuclear Hot Seat on Facebook or send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. I'll do exactly what I did here. I will contact other experts in the field, people I've interviewed, or people who I just know within the community. If they can get the information, I will pass it along to you. And if they can't get any information, then nobody can. But please make certain the story is a story before you pass it on. We must protect our integrity and credibility if our movement is to succeed. Remember that old saying? Fooled me once, shame on you. Fooled me twice, ain't it gonna happen. Be vigilant before you repost. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 23rd, 2012. You can find all our episodes posted on the nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog page, on Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat pages, and on iTunes podcasts where you can subscribe for free. Share us, link to us. This is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep. <laughs>